It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. They were a roaring wave of Harley Davidson motorcycles sweeping across the country. A blur of black leather marked with an image of death's head. One biker gang became a symbol of rebellion in the West Coast's counterculture movement of the 1960s. When we do right, nobody remembers. When we do wrong, nobody forgets. That was the motto of the infamous Hells Angels Motorcycle Club. A group shrouded in mystery, the Hells Angels Club adhered to a strict code of secrecy. For decades, members carried out violent crimes across the country. Ultimately, federal agencies designated the group a criminal organization. Becoming a member of the Hells Angels was a feat as difficult as it was dangerous. Yet one brave undercover agent managed to climb the ranks of the notorious outlaw biker gang. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. The Hells Angels Motorcycle Club originated in Southern California following the end of World War II. A military surplus of motorcycles allowed for the formation of various biking clubs or biker gangs across the West Coast. The Hells Angels being one of the more infamous clubs would go on to develop a reputation for their involvement in illegal activities such as drug trafficking, money laundering, extortion, assault, and even homicide. They notoriously attempted to kill Rolling Stones frontman Mick Jagger after he denounced the Hells Angels when a member killed a young fan during a riot at a 1969 concert. Disrespecting the Hells Angels is an action that carries dangerous consequences. When Cynthia Garcia, a 44-year-old single mother of six, was brought along to a Hells Angels party in the group's Mesa, Arizona clubhouse, she made the grave mistake of insulting the organization and its members. The bikers responded with violence, beating Garcia until she was unconscious. She was then rolled into a carpet and driven to the desert outside of Phoenix, where the Hells Angels members killed her. Her body was found four days later, stabbed almost 30 times, and left nearly decapitated. The gruesome murder of Garcia along with a deadly riot between the Hells Angels and their rival, the Mongols Motorcycle Club, prompted federal law enforcement to launch an undercover investigation into the deadly gang. That's when Jay Dobbins was brought onto the case. Jay Dobbins was a special agent with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. He was tasked with the near-impossible mission of infiltrating the Hells Angels over the course of a two-year undercover operation codenamed Black Biscuit. In his best-selling book, No Angel, 
my harrowing undercover journey to the inner circle of the Hells Angels, Dobbins details how he bypassed the extreme security measures of the gang's Skull Valley Charter and earned his patch, becoming a full member of the motorcycle club. He joins me today to discuss his extensive career in law enforcement and the story behind Operation Black Biscuit. I have the honor right now of sitting down with you. You have frankly been someone I've admired and looked up to for so many years after I first had the gripping pleasure of reading your book, No Angel, my harrowing undercover journey to the inner circle of the Hell's Angels. And one of the things that is so fascinating about you and your story, Jay, is that frankly, that wild ride started within one week of becoming an undercover special agent for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. So, sir, welcome. And why don't we jump right into what happened that first week on the job for you? Yeah, well, thank you uh, for having me. And um, I was a, uh, the, the way I landed in law enforcement is I was a failed athlete. Um, as a kid, I never had a plan B. And my plan A was to play professional football. And so... I went to the 1985 NFL Combine, which for, for your audience who isn't sports fans or football fans, the NFL Combine is their meat market where they measure you and test you and put you all kind, through all kinds of drills. And I went into that. I had a very nice college career, football career, and I went into that with a lot of confidence. And so my first interaction there was uh, the owner of the Oakland Raiders was on the field for the drills, Al Davis. And like, I grew up a football fan. And so I recognized coach Davis and went up to him and said, coach, how am I doing? Like, like, you know, do the Raiders love me? Do you want me? And he, and he looked at his score sheet and he found my name and he's like, Dobbins, oh, there you are. He goes, you're the fastest slow guy I've seen today. (laughs) Right. So my spirit was not broken. I, I knew like what I could do and what I couldn't do. So during the drills, I meet a couple young athletes who I hadn't heard of. Um, And I I had somewhat of a name coming into this. And so one guy was from a little school called Cutstown State. And I shake hands with him and I'm like, dude, where's Cutstown? And he's like, it's in Pennsylvania. And I'm shaking hands with him and thinking to myself internally, hey, good luck, because I'm going to whip your ass today. Right. So I meet this other guy from this little school in Mississippi and we start drilling and we go out to the grass And 10 minutes into these drills, my plan A had failed because I could not do what these guys who I'd never heard of could do. Well, it turns out the kid from Cutstown State was Andre Reed, who went on to play 15 years for the Bills and is in the Hall of Fame. And the kid from the small school in Mississippi went to Mississippi Valley State. It was Jerry Rice. So I wasn't judging myself against the fairest competition. Now, in hindsight, I realized that. But as a young person, like my dreams crashed in 10 minutes. I didn't, I I didn't have a plan B. And at the time, this is mid eighties, the television show, Miami Vice was very popular. And so I didn't really know anything about law enforcement, but seeing Don Johnson play Sonny Crockett, driving a Lamborghini around South beach and, and his Hugo boss suit and meeting kingpins and, and models were bringing them mojitos at these mansions. And I was like, man, that, that, that might be kind of cool, right? So I started to chase that. I ultimately got hired by ATF 
uh, on a Monday in November, uh, four days later, I was taken hostage and shot. So four days after I raised my hand and took the oath of office and received, you know, my badge, um, I was taken hostage and shot. Um, that hole right there is oh. where the bullet went in my back. Oh. And the hole right there is where it came out of. I'm, I don't know if I'm sh- showing that to you well enough. Um, that All I see right is there just blood. Is, it is a saturated with blood, that shirt. What once so, was blue now is the color. It's The whole thing's color of rust. Oh. So after, after four days, you know, thinking that I was coming in and I was going to be like, I wanted to be the next Sonny Crockett, right? Four days later, um, I got shot point blank. The bullet went in my back. It passed through my lung. It narrowly missed my heart. It exited my chest. And I was bleeding to death in the dirt and garbage of a trailer park south of Tucson, a neighborhood that, that's known as Dog Patch. And I had blood coming out of my chest like you're holding your thumb over the end of a garden hose. And I was like, man, this isn't th- 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 like my new plan A wasn't working out either. Like this isn't how this is supposed to go. Um, now, luckily, like I was surrounded by great partners. Uh, the, the guy that shot me, the suspect that shot me was killed on the scene. A massive uh, a massive shootout took place. The actual shooting took place inside a vehicle. And it was, if you can imagine the craziest shootout scene you've ever seen Hollywood create, it was a million times worse than that. It was a five, 10 second lead and glass storm with bullets going everywhere in this car. Um, but my, my partner's got me to the hospital. I was in pretty rough shape. I was, I mean, I was bleeding to death. Um, And so an amazing thing happened. One of the greatest things that happened to me in my life came from that shooting. I crossed paths with a young trauma surgeon who um, ultimately through his career became the surgeon general of the United States, Dr. Richard Carmona. Mm. Um, And I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Carmona or not, but his story is incredible, like way better than mine, way, way more spectacular than anything I ever accomplished in life. And so Dr. Carmona, like did the operations and saved my life. Can you share a little bit more about that undercover operation, the events that led to you being in that car to getting shot and then ultimately surviving? Yeah. Yeah. The actually, uh, it wasn't an undercover operation. It, it was an arrest operation. Um, and an ATF is charged with enforcing the federal firearms and explosives and arson laws. And so the, the suspect was, was in violation of the federal firearms laws. And so being a brand new agent, my team had placed me so far away from the action that there was no way I could ever get involved in it. I was there more as an observer to see how uh, the mechanics of an arrest took place than I was to actually be a participant in it. So as the agents, as the veteran agents squeeze in on the suspect, he takes off and starts running. And just my natural instincts, like I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't, I hadn't even been to the academy, but I see the suspect running and I start chasing him. And so as I'm chasing him, I'm passing 
these other agents. I'm running past them towards the suspect. So like I wasn't fast enough to play in the NFL, but I was pretty dang fast for a cop. Right. So I chased this guy down. He ends up hiding. We can't find him. We're searching the area looking for him. And he had hidden like underneath a trailer, uh, a single wide trailer in some really tall grass and weeds. And when I passed him, he crawled out from behind that concealment and got behind me and was holding the gun to my head and mm. and forced me into the into the vehicle and like was basically wanting to use me as his escape mechanism. He was screaming at me like, get me out of here. Let's go. Let's go. And the whole time he's he's got one arm around my neck and one and the gun to my head. And my first thought was I saw a telephone pole about 30 yards in front of us. And I was going to ram our car into that telephone pole. I knew this guy had bad intentions for me, but I wanted him, if that if it was going to go down that way, I wanted it to take place there and then with my partners around me versus having him take me 20 miles down the road and execute me on my knees in the ditch off the side of the highway. And so that was my plan A. My plan B when I went to start the car is I was like, there might be a better solution to this. I took the keys out of the ignition and dropped them to the floorboard. And I said, dude, I dropped the keys. And as I bent forward to grab the keys, he's lean, he's riding me forward and the gun comes off my head and moves to my back. And then that's when the shootout took place. And in this shootout, he shoots me in the back. He shot uh, multiple times. Um, and then actually, uh, my transportation to the hospital was the same vehicle that was used for the shootout. So my partner stuffed me in the back seat where the suspect had just previously been dragged out of. Um, and so we're going to the hospital and we're bouncing around and I'm like blood squirting out of my chest and glasses falling on me. And it was it was a crazy, crazy way to begin a career for sure. Oh, uh, and at that point, was your family like, I thank God you survived, obviously. And were they like, look, law enforcement's not the right path. This is too dangerous. Well, my, my family uh, had that position, had that perspective. To be honest with you, I had the exact opposite reaction to it. I was young. I was 26 years old. I'm 61 now. So that was, you know, that was quite a while ago. Um, but I felt like I was bulletproof. I had a bullet go through my chest the first week on the job and I'd survived it. And all I wanted was a chance to come back and try again and see if I could do it without making mistakes. See if I could do it without embarrassing myself. See if I could do it without getting hurt or anybody else hurt. You know, and when, when I was in the hospital, uh, attorneys were lining up like to come into my hospital room and one after another, it was almost like uh, they were taking a number waiting to speak to me one after the other. How much money you want, kid? And I was like, what are you what are you talking about? They like, you know what a million dollars looks like? Like I grew up in a blue collar house. You know, my dad was a carpenter. My mom cleaned houses and cut hair and. Um, I, like, I never knew what that kind of money was. How about $5 million? I was still puzzled by that. 
And their uh, answer to me or their, their pitch to me was, you were placed in a position by the federal government that you were not yet prepared for or trained for. And they've created a huge amount of liability by allowing this to happen to you. So tell me how much money you want. Tell me how many zeros you want placed on that check, and I will get it for you. They want you to go away. They want your story to disappear. It's an embarrassment to them that this happened to you. And all I could think of was get out. I didn't. There's no cop that I've ever met in my career, in my time on earth, who took a badge and a gun with the motivation of money behind it. That's none that I've ever met. No, no cop out there is getting rich. No school teacher out there is getting rich. No, uh, no construction work. Let people take jobs for reasons other than the paycheck. And all I wanted was a chance to come back and try again. And it's my understanding you declined disability and came back, frankly, immediately. Immediately, you came back to service. I did. So I got shot um, the end of November in 1987. And so before Christmas, um, I showed back up at the office and I still had like sutures in my chest and I, and I still had like a, a tube in my chest from the, from the, the, uh, I had a sucking chest wound. I had a chest tube on my side and I showed up at the office and my boss, who was like a very well-respected, admired, loved, uh, supervisor. He's like, Bubba, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I, I'm I'm back to work. I, I know that I'm limited with what I can do, but I can do something. And he's like, you have 90 days of medical Trump, traumatic medical leave coming to you. You can extend that for another 90 days or another 90 days beyond that. You don't have to be here. And I was like, like I was 26 years old. I said, do you think I took this job to sit home and watch TV? Like, I know that I can't go on the streets right now until I'm healed, but I just wanted to come back to work. That's all. So against that backdrop then of this preternatural resilience that you have been describing that you held at that time, fast forward to you being placed as an undercover agent at that time with the Hells Angels, a two-year, $1 million operation. Walk us through the beginning of that. Well, that's you're correct, but there's there's a preamble to that. So when I came back to work, when the opportunity uh, to to work on the the Hell's Angels was presented, I at that point I'd had fifteen years of undercover work under my belt, so I wasn't walking into that Hell's Angels case uh, as a as a as a rookie undercover agent. Um, I had bought um, over the course of those fifteen years, I had bought drugs, everything from dime bags to cartel level dope. I'd bought guns, everything from Saturday night specials to shoulder launch missiles. I'd bought bombs from homemade PVC bombs that some meth head was making on the workbench in his mom's garage up to servo activated remote control C4 devices. I'd worked on home invasions. I'd played the hitman in murder for hire cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so 15 years later, the opportunity is presented to, to be the lead undercover agent on this Hell's Angels case. But like I had laid a pretty good foundation of experience and tradecraft that that gave me a chance 
that gave me a chance at that Hells Angels case. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Kudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Kudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. How did that initial assignment begin? Uh, The Hells Angels uh, in Arizona were like based, they were operating with impunity. Um, They had become very brazen, very violent, very aggressive. Um, But there's two events that were significant in kicking off our investigation. Um, The one, the one that was most important to me is that there was a lady named Cynthia Garcia and Cynthia had uh, three or four kids. Uh, She was a single mom and she was enticed to come to a Hells Angels party at the Mesa, Arizona clubhouse. And when she was at that party, she, she spoke out of turn. She used the wrong language in that environment. She insulted the hell's angels, which like there was two fatal flaws to that. Um, she was in the wrong place at the wrong time and you don't insult the hell's angels and you don't insult them in their house that. So in reaction to that, she was beaten unconscious in the hell's she was outnumbered by a bunch of bikers. She was beaten unconscious at the hell's angels Mesa clubhouse. Then they rolled her up in a carpet and they stuffed her in the trunk of a car and drove her to the desert outside of Phoenix. And they stabbed her close to 30 times and they cut her head off. That was it. The, the people we were working on, that was their mentality as to what, a proper response to being insulted was. So that was that we knew that that uh, murder had taken place. We just didn't know the mechanics of it. We didn't know the details of it. We didn't know who's who in the zoo for that case. Um, so that got us moving. And then there was a, uh, the Hells Angels rival in the West. Their primary, they have rivals all over the world. But their rival in the West was another motorcycle gang known as the Mongols Motorcycle Gang. And at the Laughlin River Run, which is a biker rally in Laughlin, Nevada, there was uh, a riot that took place between these two gangs and shootings and stabbings and beatings um, were captured on hundreds of close circuit television cameras. And so the the gang violence had spilled into the public. Uh, common man citizens were were being affected by this, and so that is what, in essence, inspired the investigation. And Laughlin, Nevada, where this riot took place, I had an undercover house right across the Colorado River from Laughlin, Nevada, in Bullhead City, Arizona, and so I had established. Uh, a reputation in the criminal community as uh, a debt collector and a gun runner. So when all this kicked off, like I had a head start, I was not the perfect choice by any means to, to infiltrate the hell's angels. When the case agent came to me and asked me for my participation and, and we discussed it, my first response is I can name 10 guys that I know that are my peers that will serve this role better than I can. These guys are biker experts. 
they've, they've lived in that culture. They've operated in that culture. It's its own world. I was like, I don't, I don't really understand these guys. I'm not even a great motorcycle rider by any means. Um, but the fact that I had an established reputation in the criminal community and I was living now in an undercover house, but I was living amidst them. It just gave me a head start. And so it, it, there was no glamorous start to it for me. Like I was chosen almost by default. And walk us through what that first then introduction, the first exposure that the Hells Angels gang had then to you in that way, notwithstanding your head start that you were already there, you already had that reputation. What was that initial approach like? So we started pushing forward this this reputation. Um, I was I went by the name of Jay Davis. My nickname was Jaybird. And that criminal reputation of being a gun runner and being a debt collector was already solidified. So I just started promoting that more focused to the Hells Angels. Mm. Um, And I was told, uh, if you want to continue to operate in Arizona, you have to come and meet with our hierarchy. Like I had to be sanctioned to continue. And so I went to, uh, I was... it wasn't a request. It was an order. I was ordered to the Hells Angels Mesa Clubhouse, um, the same location where Cynthia Garcia was initially beaten to near death before they dragged her out to the desert. So I show up there and I've got a couple partners with me and, and we show up on our motorcycles and we're greeted in the streets by um, several Hells Angels holding guns, carrying baseball bats. One guy had a, like about a four foot section of three quarter inch rebar. Um, I mean, these guys were ready to handle business and we said, Hey man, like, like pump the brakes. Like, like we were told to be here. So we're escorted to the clubhouse and I carried in, in Arizona, you can open carry firearms. You don't have to, you don't, you, you, you can, anybody can open carry a fire. Any, any legal possessor of a firearm can just carry it in the open. You go in Arizona, you go to the grocery store, you go pump gas. You're going to see some guy with a, with a pistol strapped to the side of his leg or on his belt. So I carried two guns um, in a shoulder holster, like a double rigged shoulder holster. So I had a Glock pistol hanging under each arm. And I get to the Hells Angels clubhouse door and one of the members puts his hands out in front of me and says, you can't come in here with those. You can't like no one brings guns into our clubhouse except us. So right off the bat, I had an initial test to see like how I was going to react. Was I going to stand up for myself? Was I going to let them start dictating terms to me? And so my reaction was like, look, I'm not taking these guns off for anybody. I'm not taking them off for the Hells Angels. I'll wait outside. I'll wait for my meeting and my lecture and my instructions out here on the sidewalk, but I'm not taking my guns off. People don't like you. You think there's people after you. There's people after me, too. And so I almost reasoned my way through it. If I'm friends with you and you have a problem, you want me to have guns. You want me to have my pistols with me. You don't want me like unarmed when things break bad. And then at that point, the boss of the the Mesa Hells Angels came out and he slung his arm over my shoulder and he said, like, I make the rules. Come on in. And so that was my first real like face to face, meaningful, meaningful interaction with any of the Hells Angels. 
And what did that mean for you emotionally in the form of your your gas tank, your confidence gas tank, that you passed that test in such a glowing way with the leader of the chapter of the clubhouse saying, this guy's with me, come on in, I, I make the rules. Did that set the scene for you in terms of your confidence? And if so, how did that affect the further execution of your role? You know what it, 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 it did for me? What it, the same thing it does for uh, anybody in a relationship, in a business, in a family, is that it showed the people that I was interacting with that I was going to stick up for myself, that I wasn't going to be bullied or pushed around, and that I was going to speak on behalf of myself and my partners um, and not be a puppet and, and, and not be uh, dictated to. Like, like how I was going to live my life, what I was going to do. Um, but there's a preface to that to be actually, actually, Emily, in that, um, I, I view myself very much as a common man who was placed in uncommon situations and just did the best I could every day to succeed or survive them. Um, and this was just an example of that. There was nothing special about me. I, like I, I wasn't a super cop. I wasn't and, and and never claimed to be the best undercover operator out there. I wasn't Donnie Brasco. I wasn't Joe Pistone. I was a guy who had a job to do and every day tried to do it the best I could. Uh, there was days I failed. There was days I made mistakes that I have regrets. I There's things that I'm ashamed of. Um, but, but every day um, from the first day I took my oath and took my badge, I always considered it an honor and a privilege to be a lawman. I felt like my community, my agency was asking me to stand up on their behalf, on, on behalf of good and innocent people who wanted to live peaceful lives and take a stand against the predators who wanted to interfere with that and who wanted to disrupt that and take advantage of them. And so like that mentality stayed with me for my entire 27 year career. Like, like you were here to serve and, and I served in a way as an undercover agent where I felt like I was fulfilling my obligation uh, to the public and to my agency. One of the most remarkable parts about your book to me and your description of your, of this in particular, this undercover operation, you've had multiple in your 27 year career, but involved the lengths to which you were immersed and embedded and the resources that you deployed to ensure that your cover was always protected. Can you share about staging the murder? Yeah. I ran routinely what we call street theater. And street theater is inaccurate conclusions based on accurate observations. So I would invite members of the Hells Angels to see me in criminal activity, I would invite them, hey, come with me. I need someone to back me up on this gun deal. And I'd bring a Hells Angels with me, and then I would do a machine gun exchange with a criminal. Hey, back me up or watch, like, make sure no one sneaks up behind me and hits me on the back of the head, on the back of the head with a beer bottle when I do this drug deal. And we'd go into a bar and I would do a, tr a drug transaction. Um, they saw me in fights and in beatings. They saw me in debt collections where I would invite them saying, hey, look, just sit on my shoulder. I'm going to go take this guy's money. I'm going to take his car keys and his watch and his rings and his identifications. 
and uh, all because he owes money and I'm doing a debt collection. They would witness all those things. What they didn't realize is that they were plays. They were skits. The criminals that I was meeting with in the presence of the Hells Angels were other undercover agents and officers who were playing a role. They were playing the role of the of the drug seller or buyer. They were playing the role of the guy who was selling me the machine guns. They were playing the role of being the victim of a debt collection. But in the eyes of the Hells Angels, all they saw was Jaybird went out there. I saw him uh, sell a kilo of dope. I saw him stuffing machine guns in the trunk of his car. I saw him confront this guy at this restaurant and shook the dude down and took his wallet, took his car keys, took his money, took his credit cards, took his watch, took his ring. He collected everything of value this guy had. So I was showing them myself involved in criminal activity, and and they had no choice but to believe it. They were seeing it and hearing it and touching it and smelling it themselves. It wasn't some story I was telling them. I was putting them in the middle of the play all to uh, enhance my credibility and, and elevate my believability. So in the process, in any other undercover operation, you're trying to gain trust. You're an outsider. You're an unknown. You don't knock on the Hells Angels front door and ask to fill out an application. It doesn't work that way. Slowly, through time, through association, you build trust. And just like, just like in a personal relationship, when trust is formed, then you start to build loyalty and, and people start to care about you. And then occasionally you build love and, and, and you love people and they love you. Now, the, the downside of that is uh, the, the, the psyche side of that, the human side of it is that God doesn't build us, um, doesn't build normal people at least to intentionally go out to build trust and loyalty and love all with the intention and knowing that at some point down the road, you're going to betray all of it. Um, and so there's, you know, there's a, that aspect of it, uh, to, of, of undercover work in general. Can you, can you tell us about the staged murder, the, that you participated in, in that theatrics? Yeah. So like probably, uh, Maybe one of the most, if not the most uh, audacious street theaters, undercover operations ever like attempted. Um, I told the Hells Angels, there's a Mongol who I mentioned earlier. The Mongols were their rival. There's a Mongol in Mexico who's running his mouth. And he's saying that he's going to start trafficking methamphetamine up through Mexico, right into Arizona, right into our backyard. There's nothing we can do about it. He's saying that he was at the Laughlin riot and that he kicked the Hells Angels ass and he's mocking us and he's uh, running his mouth. And I told him, I said, I, I, I want to go kill him. I want to kill this guy. I want to prove myself. Their reaction to that, like they didn't pump the brakes. Their reaction to that was not like, oh, hey, wait a minute, man. Slow down now. Their reaction to it was, yes, right on. Go kill him. Here's the gun to kill him with. We remove the serial numbers from it. After you kill them, take the gun apart and and destroy it and and scatter the pieces so it can never be found or never be traced. So we enacted exactly what I told them I was going to do. We found our Mongol. 
We duct taped him at the wrists and at the ankles. We like beat him silly with a baseball bat. We dug a shallow grave in the desert, dragged him into the grave, executed him, shot him in the head with the gun that we were given by the Hells Angels. Then we photographed the murder. We photographed this dead Mongol in the in this shallow grave. We cut his Mongol vest off his back. And I took those pictures and the Mongol vest back to the Hells Angels to prove that I wasn't just telling them a story, that I actually had um, participated in and accomplished what I had promised them I was going to do, which was commit this murder. So they absorbed all this information. What they didn't realize is that it was just another elaborate street theater. It was a complete fabrication. The, the Mongol that we killed, quote unquote, air quotes, killed, was a member of our task force. And we dressed him up in the Mongols' colors, and we, we uh, in, uh, used um, a homicide detective to come out and build our crime scene. And he used uh, blood and guts from the butcher shop and made it look exactly as I described it. I told the homicide detective, this has to look like I beat this guy's head in with a baseball bat, like we dragged him into the desert and I shot him in the head. And so he, after with all his experience as a homicide detective and seeing hundreds of violent crime scenes, built us visually a crime scene that fit the story that I was gonna portray. So we took pictures of it and we took the evidence before we delivered it back to the Hells Angels, this homicide detective took it into a meeting of his homicide peers, a homicide unit meeting. And he put pictures in front of his peers and he said, do any of you guys have information on this John Doe that was found in the desert? There was a John Doe out there that was duct taped and beaten and shot. So all the homicide detectives are looking at these pictures and they're examining them. And once he was convinced that they were convinced that it looked real, that's all we needed to know. Like we've done this right. And now we've put ourselves in the very best position possible to present this um, evidence of this murder, a fabricated murder, nonetheless, to murderers and deliver it to murderers and sell them that, you know, that, that, that it was true because if they didn't believe it, if they felt like they were being uh, brought in, becoming co-conspirators in this murder, you know, the, 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 their reaction to that would not have been um, like, hey, like, we think you're playing a game on us. We think you're trying to trick us. We don't want you to come around here anymore. Their reaction to that would have been a baseball bat on the back of my head. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. And so what was the result for you after you brought that street theatered murder back to the Hells Angels? What level of reception did you get? Well, if I'm presenting, uh, if, if I'm presenting evidence of this, this freshly uh, committed murder that, that I just uh, participated in, and I'm showing you evidence, and I'm telling you this story, or any person with logic and reason and common sense in their brain as they're running the other direction, they're dialing 911. <laughs> the Hells Angels were the exact opposite. It was hugs and kisses and embraces. Um, the leadership, I, I was uh, running with a, a, a Hells Angels charter uh, in Skull Valley, Arizona, which is outside of Phoenix near uh, Prescott, 
uh, in between Prescott and Sedona, Arizona. This is where the charter that I was that I was prospecting in. That leadership said, you've, you've shown you've got what it takes. You took care of business. You're a hell's angel now. Um, one of the members took his vest off and put it on my back and said, you wear this until you get your own. Um, I, I guess to, to give a long answer to your short question is that 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 murder was it was embraced it like they were flattered by it. Part of what was so remarkable about your service and in that undercover operation, Jay, is exactly what you just described, which is that for an organized social group that had a very distinct hierarchy and very distinct titles and chapters you have to proceed through to be able to wear the vest, become an official member, et cetera. You penetrated that organization to the fullest amount. You talked earlier about relationships. So this, the, the fabricated murder story is explosive and certainly a, a highlight in the form of this compelling story, but the day-to-day building of relationships, that's the building blocks that your credibility was based on. So in light of how far you got, how successful you were in that regard, describe to us what building those relationships were like and how you differentiated between real life, meaning service, law enforcement, and your family, and being Jaybird and having these relationships that weren't real, but they were. Well, as far as the relationships between Jaybird and the Hells Angels, um, one thing I found is that you can never undercover out of the human factor. So I was interacting with people, not, not just in violent crime events or in criminal conduct or criminal acts. I was interacting with them uh, for two years on a, on a daily basis in, in sometimes very common situations. Um, Hell's Angels slept at my house. I slept at their house. I ate with them. I socialized with them. I shot pool with them. I held their babies. Um, and so when you do that, you, you, you form bonds. Now, now they're, they're false bonds in the, in the pretext that I'm presenting them a false persona of who I am, but the bonds are real. They, they believed in Jaybird. Um, while they still knew me to be Jaybird Davis, there's no doubt in my mind that there was Hell's Angels who would step in front of a bullet for me to protect me. Um, and, and just like any, like any other group of people you put together, there's some you like more than others. Clicks form. There's people that you enjoy being around. There's people that you enjoy socializing with. There's others that you would not so much care to be around and vice versa. There were guys that liked me and and solicited my my presence and and my friendship and my participation. There was others that like didn't care for me. Didn't it's it was it was human nature. Um, and so all those things that just take place in real life for us as human beings in social settings, it was no different. Um, the separation of playing this this gangster. Um, and now, like I did this for for 27 years. This Hell's Angels case was a two year window out of a 27 year career. Um, when I talked about regrets and failures and shame and guilt and mistakes, um, most of those were made in my personal life. Um, I, I conducted myself professionally. I, I, I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be the, at least the best that I could be. 
And I made decisions that were selfish decisions. They were for me, about me, about my career, about what I wanted to do. I did not uh, consider like how they would impact my wife. I didn't consider how they would impact my kids. I didn't consider how they would impact the future. Um, I, I was doing everything for myself. And, you know, there's one time I came home after a long run. I hadn't been home for, for an extended period of time. And I walked in the house and my wife said, you cannot be gone for months at a time and then walk in here and treat us like we are the suspects that you're investigating on the street. You can't treat us like that. You can't talk to us like that. And my reaction, my response was, I can't, I, I can't turn this on and off. I have to be on. I'm not a light switch. People who treat what I do for a living as a hobby end up dead. I have to be on my game all the time. And then her reaction was, well, you better install a dimmer switch instead of being a light switch and dial that criminal attitude down when you come to this house. And if you can't do that, don't come back until you can. Um, and you know what? Like that was my permission slip to run even wilder. That was my permission. Like I just had my wife say, if I can't change, don't come back. And I was like, well, I can't change. I've got a job to do. Um, and so this, this false illusion I had created in my own mind, like I'm out here protecting the public and, and trying to save people. My own family was crumbling like right before my eyes and I didn't even see it. I couldn't, I, I was blind to it because I was so selfish. Um, I, my my kids were were fairly young at the time. I'll, t I'll tell you a story that I think has some meaning, maybe for your audience, because it goes beyond undercover work. It goes to um, any person that might be out there listening to this. I was so committed to what I was doing professionally that I had become blind and just expected love and loyalty and admiration from my wife and my kids. So I would come home from these operations and then I would do the bare minimum I had to do to keep my family functioning. I'd pay the bills, have a cup of coffee with my wife, pat the kids on the head, and I couldn't wait to get back out on the street and be smoking and joking with gangsters. That's where I was most comfortable. That's where I felt like I had control. And every time I'd get ready to leave and go back to work, my son would run out in the yard and he'd say, Dad, don't leave yet. And he'd grab a rock out of the yard and he'd give me these these stones, these good luck charms. And so over the course of years, I, I, I kept every single one of them. And I kept one in my pocket all the time. I had them in the saddlebags of my motorcycle, my undercover car, my undercover house. I was handing them out to my partners. I was telling my partners, I don't know what it is about the blessing that Jackie is putting on these rocks, but keep one of these with you. We are in the midst of violence and murders and all kinds of craziness. And here we are, we're thriving, we're surviving. There's something about these rocks that, that this, these good luck charms, like, please keep one with you. Um, so right before I get ready to leave to go do the fake murder that we just discussed, the same routine, Jackie runs out in the yard and he grabs a rock. Don't leave yet, dad. And he comes running up and he hands me this rock. And I've saved this one for 20 plus years. 
And he's like, Dad, I've been saving this one for you. It's special. It's shaped like a heart. And so I was trying to comfort my eight-year-old. I was 40 plus years old, trying to comfort my eight-year-old son. And I took the rock and I said, dude, everything that I should have been doing with you, I'm almost done. And when I get finished, I'm going to come home and we're going to ride bikes and we're going to play catch and we're going to wrestle and we're going to go to the movies and we're going to do all that stuff. And it's all because of your good luck charms. It's all because of these rocks. I've given them to everybody I work with. Dude, they work. And this little boy standing on my driveway and he starts crying and there's tears running down his cheeks. And he said, Dad, those weren't good luck charms and you shouldn't have given them to anybody else. They were just for you. That was for you to put in your pocket. And every time you thought someone was going to hurt you, you could put your hand in your pocket and touch it. And that would be like me being there to help you fight back. That was like the best day of my life and the worst day of my life. The best day was that like my heart was open to all these things that I had been blind to. Um, the, the worst part was that it took an eight-year-old boy to teach me what my job was. My job wasn't to be a federal agent. My job wasn't to be an undercover agent or super cop. My job wasn't to infiltrate the Hells Angels. My job was to raise good kids, and I was failing, and I was failing miserably. Um, and so when you ask about, like, like, how, does, like, like how, did, how did you handle that with your family, I, like, I, I failed, I, I put massive amounts of battle damage on my on my family, all trying to do the things that I wanted to do and that I thought were important, it, like completely uh, ignoring what it was doing to them. And in terms of the relationships with the Hells Angels, how hard is it to extricate yourself immediately? And has it's there's a slow ramp up period, but then. In, in one instant, you are gone permanently. During those two years, good people do bad things? Or at the end of the day, do you separate service from criminal and it's easy for you to walk forward without looking back on those relationships? Well, and as, as much as, as I was trying to elicit trust and loyalty and love, um, I was giving those things too. I was I was trusting Hell's Angels and, and I was becoming loyal to Hell's Angels. And, and there was some members that I worked with that I had love for, that I had personal concern and care for. What I what, what I reminded myself every day was like the, the team that I was playing for. Um, I was a federal agent um, that there's elements of that lifestyle that are sexy, that are glamorous. Um, that are appealing, that are exciting, that are fun. Um, but there's also sides to it where it's just a nasty, dirty, bloody, vomit-covered scab of a life and everything in between. And so, you know, in the end, uh, the, the case ended, the infiltration case ended in a very traditional way um, with raids and search warrants and arrests. Um, and when everyone gets arrested... And everyone's sitting in the jail cell, except, hey, man, where's Jaybird? Like, it didn't take them long to figure out that that I was the infiltrator. And then through the um, through the discovery process, through the legal discovery process of presenting our case to the defense, reports, evidence, testimony, 
uh, recordings, they find out that who they believe to be Jay Bird Davis, the debt collector, hitman, uh, gun runner, was actually Jay Dobbins, an ATF agent. You know, the tiger doesn't change his stripes. Um, they all of a sudden didn't like throw their arms up and say, okay, well, like we got tricked. Like the the death threats on me and my family, my wife and my kids, um, the Hells Angels held murder contracts on me. They had farmed murder contracts to the MS-13 and to the Aryan Brotherhood. Um, a murder contract was picked up by 18th Street uh, Street Gang in Los Angeles. Um, there were threats to uh, uh, kidnap and gang rape my wife. There was threats to kidnap my kids off the school bus and torture my kids. Um, in the summer of 2008, my house was burned to the ground by arsonists. So um, there's a price to pay. If, if you want to do that job and if you want to do it the way I did it, and I'm not suggesting that anybody does. I'm not suggesting that somebody should go in and be so immersed in what they were doing and so blind to what they were doing that they wreck their lives and their families' lives. I'm not suggesting that, but I did, and there was a price to pay for that. And on the flip side of that, as a federal special agent, you know, 55 Hells Angels members were indicted, 16 for racketeering. I mean, there was an incredible upside for upholding and protecting the United States Constitution thanks to your service and that incredibly deep organization that that resulted in that. Was that your proudest moment or there was something during your undercover operation that was your proudest moment? That there was that there's an element of pride to that, but with the pride, uh, pride will betray you and, mm -hmm. and, and pride will, will crash on you. So like you mentioned, 55 uh, uh, Hells Angels and Associates indicted, 16 were indicted on RICO. We had a couple that were uh, capital murder cases, death penalty cases for the murder of Cynthia Garcia. Um, and as the case like now gets turned over into the legal process and gets turned over to the attorneys, there was arguments uh, between uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office and ATF as to how to present the case and what evidence to present and, and how to uh, how to uh, put this case before a judge and a jury. The arguments got pretty uh, wicked on the, the good guys side. And when the good guys start fighting and banging heads, that's good for the bad guys, because we like we did had not have a unified house. We were not presenting a unified argument. And so. You know, some of those charges were dismissed. Some of them were re were reduced. So after two years of blood, sweat, and tears, and taking like these these audacious risks to try to prove a case, and with you know hundreds of pieces of physical evidence, thousands of hours of recorded criminal conversations, and reports, and witness testimony, and agent testimony, the actual prosecution of the case in my mind was a failure. It did not. It did not meet anything close to what it should have been. And that case is every bit as prosecutable and winnable today as it if it's based on evidence, testimony, recordings, all those things that you present at trial. Um, but the good guys couldn't get along. And, and we see it happen time and time again where, like, we betrayed ourselves in the prosecution. 
During your two years undercover, was there ever a close call for your identity emerging? What was that like? There was. There was a, a one event where um, some Hells Angels uh, got some information that I was counterfeit, that I that I might not be who I was portraying myself to be. They didn't necessarily think I was a cop, but they thought maybe I was an, an informant, some kind of uh, external infiltrator, not a, not a federal agent. Um, and like I was questioned about that, like at on the very spot that Cynthia Garcia was murdered, I was questioned about that at gunpoint. And so that is where like experience and tradecraft come into play. Like, how are you going to escape this and stay alive? Mm. Um, there was another event where uh, I got a phone call and I was from one of the Hells Angels officers in Skull Valley and said, bring all your hardware to the clubhouse right now. So I show up at the Skull Valley clubhouse and I've got guns and knives and, you know, I'm following orders. I'm being a step and fetch. I was trying to make my way. And I was told, there's a, a group of banditos. Banditos is another motorcycle gang based centrally in Texas, but they're they're everywhere. They're worldwide. There's a group of banditos that are going to be in Las Vegas. The Hells Angels perspective was we own Las Vegas. That's our territory. We control that. They have not asked for our permission to be there. It was described to me as like they haven't they haven't got a hall pass from us to be in Las Vegas. You're going to go up there. We're sending you up there. They gave me the location and they said, when these guys show up, you better shoot them off their motorcycles before they get their kickstands down. And if you don't, we're going to be watching from a distance and we're going to shoot you. So in this trip between Skull Valley and Las Vegas, I was able to get on the phone to um, my case agent, told him the situation, told him the scenario, the case agent intercepted the banditos. Everything the Hells Angels had told me was true. But the the case agent and some cops intercepted the banditos before they could get to the point, to the location where I was told to engage with them and just held them there. And so in the eyes of the Hells Angels, they're watching. I'm there. I showed up. I did what I was supposed to. I was ready to take care of business. The suspects, the targets, the victims never showed up. But in the eyes of the Hells Angels, I was a hero because I had done what I was told to do. Was the murder of Cynthia Garcia ever prosecuted? Was there ever a conviction obtained for that? There was. That was um, an element to um, the prosecution that did not unravel on us. Uh, Mm -hmm. Thank goodness um, that we were able to get at least legal justice for Cynthia and her kids. Um, when, so, when someone's murdered like that and brutalized like the way she was, and I, I, I don't know that I have the imagination to even project like what she was thinking, what she was going through um, when she'd been beaten and stuffed in the trunk of a car and dragged into the desert. Uh, like, I'm not going to pretend to even know or imagine what that was like. So when I say that we got justice for Cynthia, I, I I think that's an overstatement. But what we did was the, the people that murdered her, uh, they were held accountable for that murder. And and uh, the, the primary um, assailants in that received uh, 25 years to life sentences, which is the max in Arizona. 
And you talked about the hit that was put on you once your identity was revealed and your home being burnt down, hits on your family. At this point every day, do you live under that same cognizance, the same fear, um, or is that dispelled? You know, that the, the, the case ended, you know, 20, 20 plus years ago. Um, I live with caution. Um, I've seen firsthand the uh, level of violence that these guys can create. I, I, I was a personal witness to it. Um, the people that I was dealing with, they don't, uh, they're not necessarily book educated, but they have master's degrees on the street. They have PhDs in violence and intimidation. And, 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 and they know how to do it and they know how to do it well. Um, I'm not looking for a fight. I don't, uh, I don't want to fight. Um, I try to avoid conflicts. I, I avoid situations where I might be in a conflict. Um, I'm not like trying to stir the pot. Um, but I also it, like take a position like, like I'm the good guy in this. I'm not the one that went out and cut this woman's head off. I wasn't selling the guns and the drugs and doing the extortions and the arsons and the threats. I, I wasn't doing that. So if I run and hide, if I'm afraid to speak up, if I'm afraid to show my face, they win. They've won if, I, if, like, if, if, if I'm not at least willing to lead like a normal, uh, hopefully good life. Like, I don't want to be Osama bin Laden and like live in some cage uh, in some cave waiting for someone to shoot a rocket at me. Like, like, like I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to poke the tiger, but like, but I'm, the, I'm not the bad guy in this. And when people like criticize me or criticize law enforcement um, or criticize undercover work, oh, you shouldn't be allowed to do that. Um, it's you, you shouldn't be allowed to c conduct yourself that way. Use that tactic. Undercover work and deception is is legally sanctioned law enforcement technique. It's a tool in an investigator's toolbox that that is fully authorized to use. It, de deception is is part of how we investigate at times, at least cases. And so when, when you're criticizing me, like, how could you do that? How could you make friends with these guys? How could you betray them? You're a rat. You're a snitch. Um, I'm like. They cut Cynthia Garcia's head off. What did you want me to do? You want me to just give them a free pass on that because they have a blood drive or because they do a toy run and take teddy bears to kids at the hospital at Christmas? I was on those on those toy runs. I had a teddy bear strapped to the back of my motorcycle. I did a methamphetamine deal in the bathroom at the hospital at the same place we were doing the toy drive. So stop with the whole moral ethical thing about how I should be conducting myself when the people I'm investigating me are a billion times worse. Stop. You spoke earlier about the human element to being an undercover agent. Describe for us, you are Jay Dobbins. Your identity was Jay Bird, Jay Davis. Another thing that struck me from your book, the tattoo that you had, which was for your children and you, you, how you had to describe it to the group, you know, what it meant. And of course, you had your story for everything. Was Jay Davis, was Jay Bird a hybrid of Jay Bird and Jay? Was it a completely separate character? Um, well, in my experience, and, and I know um, the undercover operators, you know, uh, at least from my era, from this era of history, 
um, the ones that have done deep cover infiltrations, for the most part, they all know each other. Um, there, there's there's an uh, like an informal fraternity or sorority for the women involved um, that in that and getting to know these people, getting to know uh, uh, Joe Pistone and becoming friends with Joe Pistone, who's Donnie Brasco, who is like the kingpin for us in, in the people in my world. I mean, his face is the first face in the uh, on the Mount Rushmore of undercover. World, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, but guys like Ron Stallworth, who was mm-hmm. the black Klansman. Um, who's mm-hmm. a friend of mine and, and everybody in between. Um, there's some operators that like they come to work and they put on like a costume and then they inherit the persona that comes with that appearance. Um, they're, they're, they're truly actors. They're acting a role. I was never good at that. I was just like, what you see is what you get. Um, because I was always afraid I was going to stumble and make a mistake trying to pretend to be someone that I wasn't. So the way I communicated with with suspects as Jaber Davis isn't very fair, far off from how I communicate with you or anybody else that I might interact with. So if if you, Emily, or anybody I meet, if you happen to like Jay Dobbins, you probably would have liked Jaber Davis. If you don't like Jay Dobbins, you wouldn't have liked Jay Bird Davis because they're one in the same. And can you speak to what has been arguably a glorification of organized crime and biker gangs in especially, you know, TV and, and entertainment? Can you speak to that knowing that really the currency and the undercurrent is such a high level of violence and illicit industries? Speak to how you feel about that. I, I was a, a victim of Hollywood myself when i when i told that opening story that i was intrigued by a miami vice i was like it was so glamorous and so sexy and just so cool and slick and like as an audience we had not seen uh cops portrayed in that way before before miami vice the cop shows we had seen were very procedural they were detectives that were showing up reactive to a crime scene and e- evaluating evidence and CSI type work and doing interviews. Or they were officers in uniform that were on patrol and, and responding to radio calls and doing those kinds of things. Then Sonny Crockett shows up and he's like this undercover plain clothes guy and super cool and like he's handsome. He's got beautiful hair and he's like <laughs> he's got everything that like I wish that I had that I didn't have. You know, and um, and so but the reality of it is and I found out very quick and I made this statement earlier, I found out very quick I, after I showed you my shirt. The reality of it is, is mm-hmm. that that life is just a nasty, dirty, bloody, vomit covered scab of a life. Um, and the thing is, is that I had this vision of what it was going to be like based on this world that Hollywood had created for me. Then when I saw the reality of it and how rough and violent and dirty it was, it did not change my perspective. I loved every day that I went to work. I I was excited every day. I couldn't wait for my alarm clock to go off. I would put my feet on the ground. I'd have a cup of coffee. I'd pour the kids some Cheerios. And I couldn't wait to get out the door to see if that day I could hopefully maybe impact someone's life in a good way. 
Now, there was days when I failed. There was days when I made mistakes. There was days when I did things wrong, said things wrong, um, that if I had to do it over again, I would do it better, but I would do it again, but I would do it better. Before we go, is there any final message or story that you'd like to share today? You know, I think the thing for me on a very personal level is that like through all the events of my professional career, uh, through getting shot and, and, and playing these undercover roles and the threats and the violence and uh, some of it that, that became very personal for me, um, it's, it's, it's been great for me because it has elevated my, uh, my spiritual life. Um, I, I learned something and I learned it the hard way. Um, but I learned that if the only time you're talking to God is when you're in trouble, you're in trouble. Um, and, and that was me. I went to God when I needed help. I went to God when, uh, I was in trouble or I made a mistake or I needed a rescue. And I kind of held him off like in that, kept him in that spot. And I realized, man, like now I talk to God every day, talking to God right now as I'm talking to you. Um, And I wish I hadn't had to go through all that to learn that, to understand that. I wish I hadn't had to go through all those events in my life to to come to this place and time. Um, But I hope to live the second half of my life better than I did the first half. And and I know that God will guide that. Amen. We know that. Our future days will be better than those behind us and all things work for the good of those who love the Lord, which is exactly what you just articulated. It's obvious to me that he's blessed you indeed and he's enlarged your territory. And I know you know what that means. Thank you, Jay, for your service. First and foremost, this book, No Angel, you've written two books, which everyone should read. No Angel, My Heroine Undercover Journey to the Inner Circle of the Hell's Angels. That's why I've been such a big fan and admirer for so many years And then eight years later, you wrote Catching Hell, the true story of abandonment and betrayal. You are one of the most gripping storytellers I've ever had the honor of meeting, Jay. But truly, um, I know you're no hell's angel, but I see you as an angel in service. And the compelling nature that you share these stories and the emotional honesty with which you share them, especially how so much of your childhood shaped your character, your absolute resilience, your refusal to ever give up, those have stuck with me through the years. And I'm very grateful for so much of your sacrifice and your family's sacrifice because you've been really honest with that too. And all of it has benefited all of us in America here. We appreciate your work. Well, thank you for having me and and, and all the best to you and, and everything you do. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. To stay up to date on the latest true crime headlines, subscribe to the Fox True Crime Minute with Laura Ingle wherever you listen to podcasts. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.